This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, we are in episode 132. Wow. It's finally happened. Has it? We are primarily a social studies podcast. Yeah, yeah, more or less. We have almost completely avoided one of the major disciplines in social studies. I know it's not geography because we did uh we did that. Yeah, we've done we've done a lot of civics, a lot of political science. I feel like that comes up, a lot of history. Missing some economics. Yeah, but is economics really social studies? I know. Well, it's one of the four primary disciplines of the C3 framework, which we've talked about a lot. Oh yeah, no, it, it totally I also had to I, in college I had to take two macro and micro, and that gave me the ability to teach economics. However, I never have. I took economics, so I was scared of economics, and I avoided it as much as possible. So I did what um, all good college students do: is I took it at my local community college. Oh, really? And the class was very easy. Yeah. And on the last day of class, our our professor showed us a video of him on Jeopardy. He was very good. He had a oh. huge lead, and then he lost. That's interesting. So I, I liked doing the like the rise over no the uh, you know the little graphs you do with supply and demand. Supply and demand mm-hmm. curves, that's my jam. I enjoy that quite a bit. And sometimes I think I, I, no, I don't think I do. I do utilize those in, when we talk about the industrial revolution, I do utilize that to talk about uh, how price is set and, and whatnot. But it's not a huge part of my, you know, everyday thing. I would like to do it better, I guess. I feel like the only real economic concepts I have the ability to talk about are scarcity Oh yeah, um, rare. Right? I'm kind of a weird like way to phrase it. Things I'm always like scarce. I don't know, and maybe that's because I live in a, a society of abundance Ooh. that that I think that. But but yeah, supply and demand. Yeah, yep. and that's about it. And so, what's the I one do, if you're in a if you're in a line for a very long time, how you want to wait because it's going to get true, but then it's, it's like opportunity lost and opportunity cost. Yeah, cost benefit analysis. Yeah, oh, I do know that CBA baby. Yeah. And I always like feel like if I took, if I focused too much on economics, I would like use that very methodically in my life. Right. Like if somebody's story is going too long, I'd be like, what's the cost benefit analysis of, of me standing here and listening oh. to the rest? <laughs> it seems terrible. You seems seem like, like a, terrible. economics should not make you a terrible person, Dan, but apparently it is making you one. No, I think there's actually lots of economists doing really good work. And I actually have tried to follow some of them. I know there there a lot of the the presidential campaigns right now have economists who are proposing how we address a lot of issues, you know, the growing division between the rich and the poor in society. Well, I did have one good economics lesson I used to do in my sociology class. Tell me. Where we would they would come into class and I would yeah. just have monopoly boards out and I would just let them play Classic. for a while. And then we would talk about they just they all knew how to play Monopoly or they would teach each other pretty much. Um, I let them play for a while. And then we would talk about what are the rules of Monopoly. And we would kind of discuss through what's happening in the game. Mm -hmm. And then I asked them to make a socialist Monopoly. 
Oh, so yeah. they would just hit, or give them paper and stuff, and they would make the socialist monopoly. I did the and same thing she, after you told me this one day. Yeah, it was, it's pretty cool because it has them really wrestle with what it means. And some of them went to these extremes of like a, a communist version, and then other ones were more just like, like you know, kind of like workers' rights sharing things. And so the difference between it, you could kind of see the spectrum from capitalism to socialism, which I think most economies are mixed economies on some level, right? We kind of seem to ma- make it a binary often. Yeah. No, that's true. Like, yeah. The one thing about what the monopoly, like how many people are traveling so much that they're using all these random hotels? Like, just go home. I know. That's yeah, how I would win the game. I would just not stay in, in any of these places. Yes. Yes. I think we're at the point where we've, at least I have, ex- completely exhausted the economic things I can speak about without sounding, well, I don't know. I probably already showed my ignorance. Here. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was there a while ago. So I think this is time to bring in someone who actually can uh, add something to this discussion and give us a little bit of a view of, of economics and the social studies and, and probably a critical view. And so wait, is Neil Shanks like, on our podcast? Is that who is, you're talking I about? I know. Award winner. I know real Neil Shanks mainly from him winning awards at Kufa. That's the first one of the first times I remember seeing his name. So he's already famous in my mind. Award winning Neil Shanks on our podcast. Neil Shanks, you're here. Tell us who you are, and what is your background, and what awards do you win? And do you all, do you like to well, be introduced as award-winning Neil Shanks? Oh, man, I can't stand it. And that's, like, the one thing that I, I always lead in with is, is award-winning. No. <laughs> First off, thank you guys for having me on, and thank you for, you know, taking a, a hundred and some odd episodes to get to an economics podcast, um, this social studies, visions of education. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it. I am a clinical faculty at, at Baylor University. I do a lot of research that deals with economics and where it fits in social studies and like why we do it. And I think a lot of people, including myself, come from backgrounds like you did. And it sounds like, I mean, if you took two classes, two economics classes in college, you took more than I did. So I'm not someone who has a great deal of like traditional economics content background, but somehow I was qualified to teach it. And so I taught it in high school after doing my undergraduate at Baylor University. And I basically got it because nobody else wanted to teach econ. Like everybody thought it was a lot of people didn't take to the graphs the way you did. Um, People weren't as excited about, you know, doing that cost benefit analysis and so they said, you know, here's the second year teacher. Maybe he will take it and not complain. And for me, it was cool because I got to step away from like this, like rote standardized test, U.S. history, you know, emphasis that we have in Texas and do something that, that wasn't tested. And I could kind of do some interesting things in class. And so I taught it for a few years, but I, I basically taught it in alignment with the standards in Texas, which are pretty wild. If you take a look at them, we teach not, we don't teach economics is is here in Texas. We actually teach economics with emphasis on the free enterprise system and its benefits, which is a heck of a a course title. Mm -hmm. And one that I think kind of shows the type of economics that we're vested in here in Texas. But I think that's a type of economics that's, that's pretty, pretty standard across the country too, whether they put it that way or not. And so I taught it for a couple of years and then went to graduate school, did my PhD at UT Austin. And I spent a lot of time in that program thinking about how we teach social studies, how we encounter 
dominant narratives in, in history and how we might critique them, how we might think about notions of citizenship that are transformative. But we didn't really have a lot to say about critical perspectives in economics. It was kind of, for for one reason or another, left to the side. I mean, you know, we would think about ways that we could, I think, do, I never, I didn't come across the, the monopoly idea that you had, Dan, but I think that's a great one. Ways to do economics critically, to, to illuminate, you know, inequality, to kind of point it out. But I was searching for ways to get into a critique of like the narratives of economics. And so I think that's that's kind of where my research has taken me over the last few years. You know, you mentioned, you know, I, I did win an award for my dissertation and, and my dissertation dealt with kind of the purpose of economics within a, a critical teacher education program and, and ways to think about it differently and how even pre-service teachers who are unfamiliar with economics, as, as most social studies pre-service teachers are, might take it up in, in new and critical ways. And then, you know, my research has kind of grown from there to think about what what are some, you know, what are the, the lenses to look at the discipline of economics critically? And then, you know, what what are some alternative ways of doing economics that might be more aligned with a, a, a humanizing vision for social studies? So that was pretty long and rambling, but that's kind of how I got to where I am. And it, it, it's been a pretty wild ride. You know, I, I remember... I, I commuted to Austin from Waco to do my dissertation. Um, so for four years, I was driving back and forth on I-35 in Waco, about 100 miles each way. Uh, and, and I would listen to y'all's podcast and, and always hope that somebody was going to do this work for me. And I would, you know, <laughs> one week have the econ podcast and somebody would be like, oh, here are all the sources that you need to to like go in this direction. Or, you know, here's here's some work that I've done. And I, I haven't wasn't able to find that then, but I'm, I'm glad to be on now. And I'm also glad to be working with, with a few other people who are kind of looking at economics this way. And so I think it's kind of a, an area that's, that's growing and exciting for those folks who are thinking about transformative ways to do social studies. Michael and I could sense you thinking that, and we knew <laughs> you were the one who would come on here and teach us this lesson. So it was, right, there's some kind of force analogy there, right? The force is with you. Neil Shank to to teach us. I think the force is with y'all here. Then, <laughs> you know, I think it's it's an interesting time for economics too, right? Like I know that I've I've tried to investigate when you hear about the wealth gaps and I see people post about those things. I know that there's things to teach about those, and I know that the curriculum does not address those, right? Like I can tell that that that's kind of absent. I think you know there's been a variety of a few articles I've looked at of uh, people scholars in our field who who've started to address how do we have more critical perspectives about. You know, I, I think there's a good inquiry on on addressing the super rich, right? Like, how do we how do we think about this issue on the? I think that's on the C3 site. I'll have to link that in our show notes. But I also have seen politicians talk about things like modern monetary theory. I remember I saw the Bernie Sanders campaign. I think Alexandra Ocasio Cortez started, you know, putting out some tweets about modern monetary theory. And I remember there was an economist at Stony Brook named Stephanie Kelton who I followed on Twitter for a while and tried to understand her arguments for a, a different way of kind of conceiving of economics. And so I, I understood a little bit of it. I've also seen politicians like AOC, you know, challenge notions of scarcity, which are she she claims are often used to kind of claim there's just not enough for you, right? There's not enough 
for you to want this. And uh, I think what she's done is more about narratives, too, about when we claim we can't pay for this, looking at what are the other things we're paying for or what are all the other ways that people have tax loopholes. And we've said that's OK. Or when we have uh, she put a lot of emphasis on like whenever there's military decisions or whenever there's decisions about um, tax breaks, we don't ask where are we going to pay for it. But when it comes to poverty or programs for the poor, we say, well, we just can't afford that. Or healthcare, we just can't afford that. So that's at least made me think about economics through a lens that, about those types of choices. But I don't know what to make of it, right? Because I don't have the knowledge of what to, how, what to make of that. So with that, let's talk about your article and talk about the research that you've been doing. So first thing, congratulations on being published in Theory and Research in Social Education. No, no big deal. Actually, it is a big deal, right? Um, Thanks. You know, Congratulations. Um, so the article is titled Against Economic Man, and that's in quotes, Economic Man, a feminist challenge to prevailing neoclassical norms in K-12 economics education. That sounds like that's not going to be the same as the Texas standards. Can you tell us about this study? Yeah, it's 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 definitely not going to be the same as the Texas standards. And it, it this article really gets at some of the the narratives that I think are underlying even some of the, the the political questions that you're talking about, even some of the more progressive, I think, solutions to these challenges are sometimes embedded in a way of thinking about economics that is, I think, harmful in many ways. I kind of started thinking about narratives in economics when I encountered some work of, of scholars who pointed out the fact that like when I said I was teaching economics, I really wasn't teaching economics broadly. I was teaching like this really narrow paradigm of economics. And I didn't even know that. There's this, this paradigm called neoclassical economics, which is essentially synonymous with economics, especially at the K-12 level. Whether you look at national standards, state standards, textbooks, and, and even what, you know, Teachers like myself, I consider myself, you know, a, a pretty progressive and critical teacher. I was teaching this version of economics in, I think, that paradigm, given its hold in the field and given its pervasiveness in, in K-12 social studies, deserves to be critiqued and, and examined for kind of what it says. And then also, I think alternatives are important to explore and, and kind of see what they might say in response to the neoclassical paradigm. And so that was kind of like the first eye-opening thing was that like, oh, I'm not teaching economics. I'm teaching this kind of orthodox version of neoclassical economics, which has become economics over the last 50 or 60 years due to a lot of power dynamics within the field. And But but my, my goal was first to kind of explore what that was. And so when we think about neoclassical economics, we think about kind of this vision of what like an economic human being is. Like, what kind of analysis can we do about human beings? If economics is kind of understanding how human beings make choices, then it's saying something about us as humans. And when you really look at the way that neoclassical economics positions human beings, I, at least, and, and the scholars that I kind of draw on, kind of find this really impoverished and dehumanizing version of a, a human being, someone who's like this, this machine who just, you know, tries to insatiably pursue their own best interests, make these, you know, decisions guided by rationality with perfect information and, and ultimately, you know, reach a, a position where they've, well, actually never reach a position because their, their wants are insatiable. And so they, they continue wanting more and more and more. And so essentially 
economic man is like this individual, this this kind of atomistic individual divorced from any notions of community who is constantly trying to to reach a, a greater level of utility. And then there's this other element that these pursuits can be coordinated in a market and that market is probably left best left free and, and unencumbered by government intervention. Though again, that's where kind of these political questions come in, like how much government intervention in the market should we have? And so the article kind of breaks down what it means uh, for social studies to position economic man as kind of the locus of, of economic analysis. And then also offers what I think is is maybe the most poignant critique and poignant and important and humanizing alternative paradigm in economics, that of feminist economics. And and for me, in reading the work of these these feminist economic scholars, I saw a version of economics that I was more comfortable with as someone who who pursues you know social studies for for transformative events, who thinks about the ways that that you know power in a lot of different forms is implicated in society, who questions you know the way that kind of like common sense understandings come to be I and mean, how they're kind of taken for granted and then become utilized and, and have material consequences in in political specter so in, in the political um, realm. So um, that's kind of like the the broad overview of how I got to this piece and, and kind of where I, I was interested in going with it. Do you mind giving an example of the feminist lens of economics? Like how is it different than the economic man that you that you've discussed? So I think there's there's quite a few different ways. I think the first way that people that that feminist scholars kind of started to critique neoclassical economics was that neoclassical economics doesn't have a lot to say about work or labor that doesn't have price or a monetary value attached to it. Like there's a lot of work that can be done, you know, for like wage labor or salaried labor. Like, you know, if you go out and do a job and get paid and then obviously, you know, there's there's all kinds of political questions about, you know, who should be paid and, and how much and how workers can organize. But feminist economics say that the work that is unpaid is as important as the work that is paid. So neoclassical economics has a hard time talking about like care or work within a family or a home where, you know, in a patriarchal society, women have often been forced to fill those roles of, of care, of, of child raising, those kind of things. And so, um, so that's, that's kind of like the first entry point is feminist economics is important because it allows non-wage labor to enter into our economic analysis. But it also, I think, is, is a way of deconstructing the values are really deconstructing the supposed neutrality that I think neoclassical economics shoots for. Economics is kind of positioned as like the, the most scientific of the social sciences in a lot of ways. Really throughout the 20th century, there was this like general effort to make economics more like physics and develop these, like you, you guys mentioned, like the law of supply and demand, you know, and trying to echo, you know, Newton's laws of motion or something like that, as though these are, as you could distill human behavior into like these you know, acceleration equals mass times whatever. And so I think feminist economics is an important challenge in saying that, no, these are like kind of value statements. And we, we make choices in the way that we do our economic analysis and, and our epistemologies and ontologies should be questioned. So I think 
those are some important ways. I think uh, feminist lenses introduce, you know, gender and race and ethnicity and a lot of other kind of institutional forms of oppression into economic analysis. It makes human interactions a little bit more complex by saying that we're not just these individuals who are working to pursue our own best interests, but in fact, we might be a part of a community or we might have cultural values that promote self-sacrifice. You know, it's kind of hard to to account for that in neoclassical analysis and, and to really promote notions of cooperation, caring, to think beyond just, you know, pursuing our own best interests in a, in a world filled with scarcity, but to think about, you know, how we can take advantage of the abundance that we do have. And then also, I think feminist economics is also is more open to what you talked about, Dan, where you said, you know, you brought some sociology or you brought really economics into sociology, but uh, we might bring sociology into economics. So um, those are some ways that that I think feminist economics is an important tool for teachers of economics. I remember when years ago, when I was a student, uh, we watched a, a documentary about affluenza, which was kind of, you know, this concept of, of that we are all consumers and consumerism is like an unabated good. And it was really looking at it from environmental perspectives, among others, and thinking that like we needed different models than the GDP for measuring not just economic growth, which is extractive and makes me think of the Lorax, right? Like we're just taking more and more and more until the truffula trees are gone and think about the overall impact, right? And I think obviously that's becoming increasingly important as we address issues like climate change. Like, and I think that's why you're probably seeing some of these new economic theory or not, not, I shouldn't say new economic theories because I don't know that they're new, but gain, gain more, uh, you know, prominence and discussion and kind of maybe some of the pushing back against what the Milton Friedman free enterprise economics that has been very dominant. I will say a good example. I was just watching the new Ronnie Chang stand-up comedy special. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it just came out. And his beginning of it, it's really felt like a critique of like our us as consumers because he was just talking about like Amazon and Amazon Prime. And he, you know, just talked about this kind of notion of like we want everything now and the end of his skit you know he got to like where we want it before i want you to tell me what i want before i think of it right like i want amazon to deliver it to me before i think of it which is kind of also scary because that's i think what shoshana zuboff in her book uh, about surveillance capitalism has really argued that that's what companies are trying to do is they're actually trying to uh, direct our behavior towards things without us realizing it that, that that that's the new economy that Google essentially invented and that Facebook has now come to you know be most probably known for and so it's it's interesting to think how we address these these kinds of new types of issues like surveillance capitalism as a as an economic theory and how we get those in schools because they seem like the most relevant things like people are fighting about economics it's not just about teaching these theories that are agreed upon like you kind of said so it's, that's really interesting to think how feminists, grinding it in feminist theory kind of makes a lot of sense because it brings up all the things that are seem to be missing. And I, I also think about how uh, teacher labor is another issue. You know, teachers is a, it's a profession that's primarily been uh, feminized, also in many ways racialized. There's a lot of teachers of color lost their jobs after Brown versus Board of Education. But, you know, teacher work is often, you know, we're just asked to do more work all the time. Our work is intensified increasingly digitally intensified now where we're supposed to answer emails at night on the weekends anytime you should be always connected and able to to respond to things and and so it's i don't know like is that is is that stuff we we can discuss in social studies and how how do we start to do it <laughs> well i mean 
I think it's stuff we should. Obviously, if these are, you know, the the sort of deep you know, abiding, like the themes of the era are the things that we should be taking on in social studies. And so um, I think you're right. I think if it's relevant to our students and it's relevant to our world, then that's what we need to be doing. And so we can't do those things properly, I think, without economics and social studies. And so that's where we're trying to bring that along. So you talk about, you know, like teachers and their labor being undervalued. I mean, that's sort of a, again, as you say, like that's, it's been, it's labor that's been feminized. And so it's been devalued. It's, it's seen as like care labor. And so that's a way to devalue it. You know, teachers are, are thought to be called to the profession. And so, you know, under that, that kind of takes the form of some of the monetary capital that, that would be used to, to pay teachers because, you know, they want to be there. You know, it's, there's, there's a lot of analyses of like why, you know, we basically, as individuals are building up these skills and abilities to go out and bargain on the job market to earn money, which we're going to then bargain to, you know, buy our, our happiness through consumption. And so I think if we had different ways of thinking about like what it means to live and to work and to be happy, you know, we'd obviously develop different economic systems that would help us do those things. So your article is talking more about how to make economics more relevant to to students, right? Do you mind talking a little bit more about how you would do that? I, I think that, you know, we have this, there, economics as a discipline is, is incredibly white and incredibly male, even more so than other social studies disciplines. And a lot of feminist economics and, and other economics really attribute that to the fact that neoclassical economics doesn't have a lot to say about race and gender. It doesn't have a lot to say about types of labor beyond wage labor. Um, and so one of the things that I think is is really salient to this uh, critique of the paradigm is the fact that if you want to teach economics in a way that's relevant to your students, like you should include content that says something about their lives, whether it's their lives, you know, in their household where they're participating in, in non-monetary labor, where they're, you know, caring for siblings or where they see their, you know, parents doing the same, um, whether it's, you know, having some lens to look at systemic racism and inequality that they find, you know, whether it's being able to bring a notion of community in your classroom. I mean, just just think about, you know, as a teacher, you're trying to build a, a cohesive classroom community and then you're teaching economics in a way that says we're all trying to, you know, get ours at, and, and maximize our own individual utility at the expense of others. You know, that's I've over many years in, in both high school and college taught this this version of a trading game where uh, there are buyers and sellers and buyers are, you know, trying to negotiate a low price. Sellers are trying to negotiate a high price. And, you know, it's, it's meant to illustrate supply and demand at kind of the basic level. I, I did it in a micro econ class in, in college and I just kind of took it from there and and you can change it and, you know, use it to illustrate trusts or you can minimal wage changes. Um, but one thing I, I like to do is do like a, a round of perfect competition where everybody's just trying to do their best. And then you reward the person who achieves the most, who makes the most profit. Right. And I turn around and do another round where everyone gets rewarded. If everyone meets a certain income threshold, usually like the average of the first round. And I've found that in my high school classes, 
students were able to kind of do that. They were able to cooperate to the point where they could all ensure that everyone kind of achieved that way. I don't know if there was something about my students or whatever, but like they would take a loss if it meant somebody else could could succeed because duh, that's what the incentive was telling them to do. When I got to my teacher education classes, when I was teaching those, my in in like you know a, a implicitly critical teacher education program, my students really struggle with that. Like they couldn't shake off this notion of individualism to the point where like they our classes would lose. Like they would not get this reward in the end of the second round. They wouldn't collaborate. They would still, they would kind of try to share, they would kind of try to not take enough profit, but people like wouldn't take a loss to help somebody else meet this income threshold. And so I think, like I said, these, these, these notions of non-monetary work of, of exploring racism, sexism, and then of, of communion, communal notions of economic activity, I think are all, uh, really vital, um, to the work that we do in social studies classes. And so I think that's why, one of the reasons why, again, we need some alternative paradigms that help us get there. So yeah, I've done, I've mentioned before on this podcast, I'd have done a, a simulation activity called star power that I've wrestled with whether to do or not, because it's really hard in an economic simulation, even to get students thinking about kind of even the affective components of unjust economic policies, right? I think I saw a tweet the other day, which I can't verify that 60% of wealth is inherited wealth, and which seems incredible um, to think and really puts a, a dent in the kind of myth of meritocracy that, you know, the American dream, you just kind of work hard and the people who work the hardest make it. Um, and a lot of us know that that's not the case. But, you know, I think even, you know, Trump's campaign was able to rest a lot on him claiming his wealth, which he won't release and has been a, an, an issue that a lot of people have brought up. Well, did he the get a small um, loan from his father of a million dollars? It wasn't that the... right. Right. Yes. Um, and and in the game you um, that we play, there's the students have rigged bags, which is essentially what happens right in a lot of different ways. It's both inherited wealth, but it's also can be racial. You know, the, the, there's certainly more social mobility for white people, even in on similar economic spectrums. And when you think about school, the this racial segregation of schools, which is also socioeconomic, but those things are all part of kind of, you know, the economic bag, but it's hard to do lessons that, that get students there. And I think we need a lot more, you know, lessons that help students see that it's difficult because the narratives of society keep telling them, you know, you've earned it. And I went to a I went to both an urban, you know, inner city school and also a very wealthy school. And the thing that I always would always struck me about the really wealthy school is how many of the students seem to think by high school they had earned their place in society. And that always really bothered me to the point where I transferred out and I just I felt very uncomfortable, even though I grew up very middle middle class. It's hard. It's a hard lesson to teach, especially when you benefit. You know, a lot of people in power are the ones who benefit from the inequity. One of the things that I was thinking about so like one of the, in, you know, in economics is all about like what you can get for, for what. And I was thinking like the whole paradigm of like, you want to buy a house, you have X amount of dollars, how much, you know, house can you buy? What can you do? And that's part of it. And, but it seems like, do you remember the Adam ruins everything sketch where they were talking about redlining? And so then they're looking at housing just differently. So it's not just that I want a house, you know, how much can I buy? But it's really like looking at the societal structures about where you can buy homes and why some people are not allowed in other places. And that made me just think a little bit about economics in a way that's more, that adds more complexity 
Um, and I was wondering if that would kind of fit into the the feminist lens of, of economics. Yeah, that episode was uh, Adam Ruins Everything, The Suburbs, specifically, but they ended up having Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's done tremendous work on segregation in schools, on during that episode. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I did learn a lot from that. Sorry, I think you had a question for Dr. Shanks that I didn't mean to interrupt, but I wanted to make sure people get that. We'll get that in the show notes, but it's a great teaching tool. Like, if you're teaching high school economics, I actually think it's a really good episode. Yeah, shout out Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's awesome, and and I think... A fellow Iowan too, so big fan of her work. But I, I do think to your question, Michael, that that is an element of feminist economics is thinking about how power operates to shape the choices that are available to people. A lot of neoclassical modeling relies on the idea that we're all free to make unencumbered choices and that we're all making our best decisions based on perfect information and kind of equal footing. And, and if we look at a lot of structural inequality, we whether it's, it's racism, sexism, or otherwise, like we, we see that people aren't coming from equal footing when they make their choices. And there, there's a lot of factors that really constrain the choices we have. So redlining is a great example of, like, it's not just about, I want to buy a house in this neighborhood. It's about racism that's been built into the housing code that's going to constrain where you can live and therefore how much wealth will accrue to you and the generations that follow. So as a classroom teacher, how can I utilize this in the classroom? Yeah, that's probably the toughest question because again, you know, so many social studies teachers have have just a limited background in economics and, and even the backgrounds that a lot of teachers have are, are really steeped in neoclassical tenets. And, you know, the national standards, whether it's the C3 framework or the, the voluntary national content standards that's put out by the Council for Economics Education are really aligned with neoclassicism. And so trying to bring in these, these critical lenses and alternative paradigms um, is really challenging. So I, I kind of recommend, you know, kind of a, a softer approach, you know, to, to easing into this as you as a teacher, you know, you continue to, to grow and, and think about these, these paradigms and seek out new information. But I think that, you know, it's, it's comes down to, as a teacher, asking some, some broader questions and using a bigger toolbox when it comes to economics. And that's, you know, kind of towards the end of the article, I kind of lay out a few of these examples. So, you know, I think teachers can ask their students, like, what's missing when we only use math and graphs to model economic activity? You know, that's that's kind of a pretty, pretty broad question. And, and then we might use, you know, some tools where we bring in like qualitative methods to economics, um, which is something that normally doesn't come in. But actually talking to people about their choices and maybe, you know, how they're constrained in certain ways and their experiences. I think, you know, you can, again, just offer your question, these broad questions like why aren't we talking about non-monetary labor? Why is the work of the home not valued? And then think about, you know, what tools do we need to recognize how much of our lives are and our decisions and our choices come out of that non-monetary labor. You know, I think we can talk about systems of oppression and how our choices are mediated by them and then explore historical analyses to kind of grow our understanding of the way that that maybe racism intersects with economics. We can talk about and, and ask questions about how 
our students build and maintain relationships without markets, which might sound like, duh, you know, obviously most of their relationships are that way. But then if we're talking about their choices are always occurring in a market system in the economic realm, we might say, like, what are some tools where we could think about how to provision goods and services differently than just using the invisible hand of the market? You know, we need to definitely ask, like, who the economists we're learning from are. You know, this is like commonsensical when we think about, you know, history, like, are we always talking about the same old dead white dudes and learning from the same old white um, historians? You know, we're, we're trying to expand the canon in that way. We should be doing the same thing with the economic philosophers that we learn from. Think about, you know, what are the non-white, non-male, non-Western economists we can learn from. Um, and then I think, you know, again, going back to the idea of standards, like say who really question who benefits from the existing standards that we're teaching, you know, who benefits from economics with an emphasis on free enterprise system and its benefits in Texas, you know, who benefits from that being the only version of economics that students get and then say, like, what are some other schools of thought and how can we use those tools in our classroom uh, to maybe disrupt the existing order? That, again, is super broad um, and takes a lot of work, but I think that's where we start. It's, that's great advice. And I really think it's important, too, because, you know, when you bring this stuff in schools, I think teachers are worried about how other people perceive it. And what it means is we've we've let the objective economic man model win. You know, it is the dominant paradigm and seen as unbiased. And if you bring in other perspectives, those are seen as biased. And that that is problematic because, it, you know, it positions some people to win and some people to lose. So this is really important work. And uh, all right. We'll have more economics episodes. Okay. I mean, you know, I, as much as I treasure being, you know, the first and only oh, economics man. episode here. Now we're getting uh, shamed. <laughs> I'll, I'll link some great economists in social studies or social studies scholars who are doing great work in economics in the show notes to make sure that people have some other people to check out. And you guys have some other folks who uh, might be worthy of talking to. All right. Fantastic. Neil Shanks, award-winning Neil Shanks. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Well, thank you guys again. Big fan. I've enjoyed the podcast, and it's been great being on. And we enjoy being enjoyed. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Yeah, so I I keep a pretty pretty bland Twitter account at SS Methods. That's mostly just me kind of talking through what I do in my social studies methods classes. So if you want to keep up with some of the work we do there, but obviously. You know, we're touching on economics there. This spring, I'll be teaching a class called Teaching Geography in the Social Studies, but it'll be emphasizing economic geography, so the intersections of economics and geography. So follow along there. And then Google Scholar, and you can reach me at neil underscore shanks at baylor.edu. Happy to talk anytime. Woo-hoo. So thank you again for joining us. We certainly hope to continue the discussions with your social studies methods Twitter account. Um, and in other places online. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Now, at the Vision of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to talk economic policy, hit us up at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook, and again, that mystery space, which I have forgotten. And, of course, if you haven't already, and really, come on, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, in anywhere you'd like us to be.
And if you haven't written us a five-star review yet, it means that you are acting like economic man. Please have a more relational feminist view and get on there and give us a five-star review. It helps people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. (laughs) We'd also like to thank Zach Seitz of Wally High School, Texas, and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. Thank you for editing us to make us sound better. Zach does tremendous work. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.